Amen. What if God's plan for the redemption, the rescue of our sin-sick human family followed a different timeline, maybe took place in a different universe? That's popular today, isn't it? Alternate universes, the multiverse, all sorts of different timelines and earths. Well, imagine if God's plan had taken place in a different world, a different timeline, and that work of his, that redemptive work actually began with the Uyghur people of Central Asia. They were the group that God had chosen to reveal himself to. They are the group that God had spoken to and called to himself, the Uyghurs. And let's say that we here in the U.S. today had been for centuries following our own religions, that we had been following our own philosophies when suddenly Uyghur evangelists came to tell us about the promised Uyghur king. The one who had been sent according to the words of the Uyghur prophets. Now, if interested, we would discover a rich history of how God had been at work for centuries among this people group. We'd be directed to the Uyghur scriptures, the sacred writings. We would read about Uyghur milestones, heroes, music, prayers, wisdom. We'd be exposed to Uyghur language and Uyghur culture. We would be encouraged to adopt Uyghur values. Now, if this was our path to God, if this is how we came to know of Him, then it wouldn't be surprising, would it, if non-Uyghurs like us were tempted to feel like we were Always outsiders in some sense. Always outsiders. That we were maybe second class servants of God. And maybe there would be Uyghurs who would tell us as much. Or maybe if they didn't say it directly, it would be implied in the way that they treated us. And the way they carried themselves. If we did feel that way, how might God want to encourage us, non-Uyghurs? How might he want to encourage us? Well, let's see how God's word this morning helps us answer that question by looking together at Ephesians chapter 2. Have you got it open? Open it up. Ephesians chapter 2. If you were able to read through these opening chapters of Ephesians this past week, then you will know just how rich this material is. How the depth of it, right? Uh, the the eternal encouragement that is so it, it just it runs rampant through these chapters. But keep that context in mind, okay? Ephesians one, two, and three. Keep that context in mind. Whatever you recall from your reading, keep it in mind as we focus in on verses eleven through twenty-two of chapter two this morning. 11 through 22. Now, instead of reading through all of those verses in kind of one fell swoop here, I'm not going to do that. We're going to take them a, a little bit at a time, take them in smaller units. So, for example, let's look at the very first verse, verse 11. This is how Paul begins the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, let's stop there. Like so many churches across the Roman Empire in the first century, the church here in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus was composed of both Jews and non-Jews, Jewish and non-Jewish converts to the Christian faith. Where was Ephesus? It's in what today is the country of Turkey on the west side, close to the coast of Turkey. In that day, it was called Asia Minor, the Roman province of Asia Minor. But just as we heard here in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul wants to speak directly to a portion of that church. Remember, non-Jewish and non-Jewish converts. He's speaking clearly here to the non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. In the Greek language in which this was originally written 2,000 years ago, that word is the word ethne. Guess what word we get from that? Ethnic, right? Ethnic. Ethne simply meant the nations. The nations. The word Gentile comes from gentilis in the Latin. It simply means the people, a people group. And so Gentiles were these peoples, right? The peoples who were not Jewish out there in terms of the reference point being the Jews looking out from the place where God had positioned them. Now, notice the way, as he's speaking to these Gentile Christians here in chapter 2, verse 11, notice the way that he qualifies just about every statement he makes. Did you see that? He qualifies every statement that he makes here. He's not simply addressing the Gentiles. He says what? You Gentiles in the flesh. You Gentiles in the flesh. Hmm, what's he doing there? Why is he, why is he qualifying that? And not only do some inside and outside of the church refer to these disciples, these Gentile Christians, as the uncircumcision, they're called that, but they are labeled as such by those who are called the circumcision. He doesn't say simply, you're the circumcision, they're the un, or you're the uncircumcision, I mean, they're the circumcision. He says, those who call you the uncircumcision, They're called the circumcision. And guess what? He qualifies that circumcision, doesn't he? What kind of circumcision is it? It's one made with hands. In the flesh by hands. So what exactly is happening here? Why is Paul qualifying everything that he's saying to these non-Jewish converts to the Christian faith? Well, I think Paul wants to remind them from the outset that there are larger spiritual realities that we have to consider when we're using labels like these, labels like Gentiles, label a label like uncircumcision and circumcision. For example, these readers may have been born to non-Jewish parents and raised in non-Jewish culture, much like most of us, I would guess. But in a very real sense, they were no longer Gentiles. They were no longer Gentiles. That is, they are no longer of the Gentile world. It's in this sense that if you flip over to chapter 4 and look at verse 17... Flip the page to 417. You'll see that Paul is writing in this sense when he says to them, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
well, wait a minute, Paul, we're Gentiles. Why are you saying we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do? Because you're no longer of the Gentile world. That's not how you're identified anymore. That's not your identity anymore. Similarly, not everyone who calls himself a Jew really is a Jew, according to the Apostle Paul. Where do we know that from? We know that from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Take a look here on the screen. Paul writes in Romans 2, For no one is a Jew who is one merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical or made by hands, as Ephesians 2 would express it, made by hands, outward and physical. But a Jew, says Paul, is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. This one's praise is not from man, but from God. Are you beginning to understand why Paul is qualifying his words? When he uses these words, he wants to be very, very careful about what he's saying. We also know that in kind of the sister or companion letter to Ephesians, a book called Colossians, we know that Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 11. In him, this is what he's telling his Gentile, non-Jewish listeners. In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised. Uh, no, I think we would have remembered if we were circumcised, Paul. Well, listen to what he says. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Not an outward physical circumcision. You were circumcised by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the heart circumcision that Paul was talking about in Romans 2. It doesn't matter if your physical body is marked in a way that sets you apart. What matters is that your spirit is marked in a way that sets you apart. That God has marked you with a sign and seal of the new covenant through the Holy Spirit because of the work that Jesus did when he died on the cross. These are deep thoughts, aren't they? They're big. But I want you to keep them in mind as Paul is setting us up here. So after qualifying those terms in verse 11, look at how he continues here in verse 12. Remember, he used the word remember in verse 11. Guess what? He picks it up again. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That is, you were separated from the Messiah. Christ just means Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth or from citizenship in Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, notice how Paul is stressing here in verse 12 that before God's grace to these non-Jewish converts, these non-Jewish disciples, before God's grace was poured into their lives, these Gentile believers truly had been separated They had been alienated. They had been strangers. See how the words are piling up? Separated, alienated, strangers. Strangers, alienated, separated from what? By what? It says right here. Strangers, alienated, separated in terms of God's revelation to and his work among the Israelites. They had no knowledge of that. Did some Gentiles have knowledge of that? Absolutely. We can read about those in the New Testament, often called God-fearers. Cornelius is a great example in Acts chapter 10. 
We also read about them in the Old Testament, those who were not Hebrews, but they were among the Hebrew people. They were able to live among the Hebrew people and they worshiped the God of the Hebrews as the true God. So we know about this, but in general, for the most part, 99% of the Gentiles had no knowledge of this. They were separated. They were alienated. They were strangers. And just as we find here in this verse, verse 12, in his letter to the Romans, Paul highlights a number of blessings that really were enjoyed by the Jewish people alone. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God had actually spoken to them. Uh, Paul adds this in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He adds to this the adoption. He says they've got the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul, as a Jew himself, he does take the time to be able to say, here's what's so wonderful about my heritage. Here's what I'm so grateful to God for in terms of my heritage, what my people were given. But these Gentile believers had none of that. None of it. That was not their heritage They were not raised with these kinds of blessings. They didn't have this revelation from the maker of heaven and earth. And without God's revelation, without his promises, especially the promise of the Messiah, they were without hope and without God in the world. Isn't that our story too? Isn't that our story? That there's a time in your life where you are truly without hope and without God in the world before you know Christ in a saving way. Truly know Christ by faith. You don't know Him. You're cut off from Him. A stranger. Alienated. Separated. You see, just as you and I might at times feel like outsiders in a movement today that had begun among, began among the Uyghur people of Central Asia, and they came here and brought all this strange culture to us, all these strange ideas, all this heritage, all this background, things we were unfamiliar with. Uh, Uyghur scriptures got overseen by Uyghur leaders using Uyghur terminology focused on this Uyghur king, a Uyghur messiah. So too in this day, the Gentiles must have been dealing with similar feelings in regard to the Jewish, the Hebrew context out of which the Christian faith arose. It's very hard for us to grasp this. That's why I'm trying to use a little technique here to get you thinking a different way. Why is it so hard for us to grasp this? Because Christianity is predominantly now and has been for the majority of the last 2,000 years, a Gentile religion, a Gentile faith, a non-Jewish faith. But when these people, these non-Jews, first heard of it, guess what? It was a predominantly Jewish belief. That's where it came from. So it's very important for us to try to put ourselves in the sandals 
of our Gentile ancestors in the faith to go back and to think about, wow, what if I had been in a Uyghur church, you know, and like, what are you saying? What, what is that word you're saying? Like, what, what exactly is going on? What's, what Uyghur scriptures? What does this book mean? What's the name of this? Like, this makes no sense to me. That's how they felt. That's what it was like for them. Now, there's not a sense in this book of Ephesians that there was a strong, not Uyghur, but Jewish. There wasn't, doesn't seem to be a strong Jewish element in this book in terms of a faction within the church who was really making the Gentiles feel alienated. We see that in other books in the New Testament, right? Where the Jews and Gentiles within the church who were both Christians, they were having a difficult time getting, getting along. We don't sense that here, but we know it was a, just a, a widespread, larger issue, and there was tension. There was even from the Gentile side that unfamiliarity, what must have just seemed so alien to them. But let's continue here this morning and see again how God speaks to this. We talked about this, how these Gentiles must have felt in light of the Jewish, the Hebrew context out of which the Christian faith arose. But everything was different now. A great tagline for Christian Christianity. Everything is different now. Everything is different now. That should be a motto for your life and my life. Everything is different now. Why? Because of Jesus. Everything was different now. Because of Jesus, things really had changed radically. And Paul wants his readers here in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, to understand, to grasp just how profound and amazing these changes really were. Look at how he explains this in verses 13 through 18, the heart of this passage. But now, there's that but now, but now, in Christ Jesus You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his own flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Jesus came, and he preached peace. This is an allusion to Isaiah 57. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off. He came and preached peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Whoa. Imagine if if a, a Uyghur apostle said that to us, right? What has Messiah Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross? He has brought about peace. Peace between who? Yes, between God and humanity. We see that there in verse 16. Reconciliation is talked about there. Uh, Us to God. But the real emphasis here is peace between Jews and Gentiles. How did his death bring about this peace? By removing the very thing that had separated them and had even led to hostility on both sides of the line. Verse 15, Christ abolished 
the law of Moses. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Christ abolished the law of Moses. Wait a minute, isn't God's law a good thing? Absolutely. But it was deliberately given for a set period of time. We know that. It's obvious from the word of God. It was deliberately given for a set period of time. Until when? Until Jesus could fill it to overflowing through his life, death, and resurrection. Matthew 5.17 I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And when he did fulfill it, it was abolished. It grew, it faded away as Hebrews 8 talks about that old covenant. So we know from the New Testament, the moral force of the law remains unchanged for us. We still don't steal. We still don't commit adultery. We still don't lie. We still don't wrong our neighbor. We don't do those things that were at the heart, kind of the heart of the law, the heartbeat of God's law. But, the, but what we see here is that even though the moral force of the law remains unchanged for us, all of its what we could call preparatory elements, the things it was getting ready, right? It was kind of preparing the pathway for who? For Jesus. So all of those preparatory elements were no longer needed when Christ came. Things like animal sacrifices. Who needs a lamb when you have the lamb of the lamb of God who dies in your place? Who sacrifices himself? Who needs a lamb sacrifice on a man-made altar? The animal sacrifices, the dietary laws like we talked about last week, and lots of other clean and unclean metrics in, the, in that law that set apart or shaped the distinctiveness of the Jewish people, right? What they could not and could not wear, who they could be with, what you do with a dead body, what you do at different times of your life, all these things, diseases. All of it was done away with. Undoubtedly, cultural distinctives might persist. Things that had shaped Jewish culture, and that was fine. But none of these things, according to God's word, should ever again be used to judge the people of God or divide the people of God. Speaking of the people of God... What we need to grasp here in verses 13 through 18, what we need to grasp most of all is the stunning statement that Paul makes right there in the very center of this passage. How did Jesus end this Jew and Gentile division? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might do what? That he might create in himself one new Man in place of the two. Now you may not, you may not grasp the, the profundity of that statement. But anyone who has uh, even a basic knowledge of the Old Testament and New Testament, when you read those words, there are shockwaves that are sent. One New man in place of the two? One new man in place of the two? Now think about this for a moment. One new man in place of the two? Uh, Who are the people of God? Paul would say the church. So wait a minute. Has the church become the new Israel? No. Is there another plan for Israel as a separate people of God? (laughs) No. 
apart from a Jewish revival that will take place one day, according to Romans 11, a revival in which it seems a huge number of Jews will turn to Jesus as Messiah, in which a large number of Jews will become part of this one man in place of the two. Apart from this, Israelite and non-Israelite, Jewish and non-Jewish, are no longer categories when it comes to the people of God. They're over. They're done. One new man in place of the two. Galatians 3.28 tells us this. Take a look. There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But look at how Paul expands on this idea. In the closing verses of this chapter, verse 19, he says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That simply means the holy ones and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you see there how the separated, alienated, and strangers separated, alienated, and strangers. Did you see how that language in verse 12 has now been reversed? Right? It's been reversed. You who are on the outside are now on the inside. Everything's changed. Verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. As we heard in verse 13, you who were once far off have been brought near. But wait a minute, what about the commonwealth or citizenship in Israel? In Jesus, verse 19, we are now fellow citizens. But wait a minute, uh, we don't descend from the human family of Abraham. No, we are members of God's household. Even better, <laughs> way better. We are members of God's family now. doesn't matter where you came from in terms of your genetics. We have been made part of God's family. But again, it almost sounds like we're being added to Israel here in some sense. Uh, far off, brought near, made fellow citizens. Wait a minute. Well, to borrow Paul's language in Romans chapter 11, Romans eleven sixteen through 24, it sounds like we're being grafted into the olive tree that is Israel. But brothers and sisters, remember Israel was only the olive tree. Jeremiah, Hosea talked about this. They were only the olive tree in the sense that God began his work of forming a people for himself with that one human family. He began there. You see, the tree is not ultimately Israel. The tree is ultimately the people of God. The people of God. And Paul is writing to the Ephesians about the fullness of what God began long ago. There are certain theologies out there that will try to tell you that somehow the church is a parenthesis. It's some kind of, kind of like backup plan that God had. And that God always had this plan for the Hebrews that was going to be fulfilled in some, some specific way. Right? 
That is absolutely untrue. It is patently unbiblical. Why? Because Paul, in the very next chapter, look at Ephesians chapter 3. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. He makes it abundantly clear, this was always God's plan. And not only God's plan, the fullness of God's plan. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. I'm going to skip down some of those verses. But he says this, Ephesian believers, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What was Paul's mission? What was he sent to do? Take a look, verse 9. He was called to preach that gospel, the richness of that gospel, but also to bring to light for everyone, Jew and Gentile, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now, might now be made known Skip down verse 10. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The new covenant and this mystery, the fullness of his eternal plan, was not a plan B. It was not a divergent stream. It is the fullness of what God was always working towards. Always working towards. That's why when it comes to his people, there is now one new man in place of the two. One new man in place of the two. A mystery hidden, a plan, an eternal purpose. This is the same fullness Paul describes in verses 21 and 22 at the end of chapter 2. These non-Jews might have said, well, the Jews have a sacred temple to God. Man, in Jerusalem, they've got their own temple to God. That's where God dwells among them. But Paul writes to them and says, brothers and sisters, all of you, like everything else you need to know, that was given, deliberately given for a set period of time. But now in Christ, we are that temple. We are that temple. Remarkably, we are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And it's this fullness that helps us understand how Paul opened this section in verse 11. He qualified those earthly labels. Gentiles, yes, you are, but only in the flesh. You see, because there's no longer a category like that if you belong to the people of God. You're not a Gentile. Uncircumcision, no, not in the way that truly matters. You have been circumcised by the Spirit inwardly through Christ. Here's that fullness, that language again. Now, as we stop for a minute and we think about how all of this changes, how all of this changes things, as we think about how all this changes things for us, for you here today, I want you to look back at that small phrase in verse 12. Look at 2.12. It's just three words. Do you see it? At... That time. At that time. What time is he talking about? Well, look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Look at verse 1. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he set the time parameter, didn't he? He says, remember back before Jesus? Remember in your life back before the grace of God broke into your your heart and your life? Remember where you were? You were dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin. Desensitized to God and anything good. What was your life about? It was about the flesh, the world, and the devil. That's what it was about. It was about you living your me-centered life. You following after all the philosophies of this world. You going after what was good, what was hot, what was trending. right? You defining yourself by the desires of your own flesh. You see, when he says at that time, what he wants them to do is to look back. And just as he was doing in the first verses, the opening verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 10, he's wanting them there to embrace this new individual identity as those who have been made alive, verse 5, who have been seated with, verse 6, Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Those who by grace, through faith, have been transformed. Just as he was doing that in the opening verses in terms of your individual identity, who you are, the truth about who you are now in light of the grace of God, here he is confronting them with the reality of their new group identity, their new corporate identity, we might say. Brothers and sisters, friends, take a look here. God wants to remind us this morning that the gospel of grace is and always has been good news about a radically new group identity. A radically new group identity that flows out of the gospel of Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Paul is doing here? Listen, you may come from a dysfunctional family or a broken home. Maybe you're the kind of person who has always felt like you're on the outside looking in. Or maybe you've built your identity to an unhealthy degree around things like your family's name or your race or your party affiliation or your vocation or some team or club or hobby for you practically for all intents and purposes that is your group identity that's how you think of yourself in terms of belonging that is your corporate identity those things wherever you're coming from this morning god has a word for you this morning and this and it's this if you belong to jesus by god's grace alone through faith alone, then you cannot be and never again will be on the outside looking in. Never. In fact, regardless of whether your family heritage is an honor, a stain, or a question mark, in Christ, yours is the heritage of the people of God. Does that excite you? Yours is the heritage of the people of God. The Bible is your family album. Your story. What used to be about them and them has in reality always been about us. The church. Always. 
We are the people of God. As Paul described us in chapter 1, verse 23, look over at it, 123, we are His body, we are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Isn't that staggering? Such exalted language about the church. I ask you this this morning, and God asks you this, the Spirit searches even your heart now. How are you tempted in terms of group identity? How are you tempted in terms of your group identity? Are you dragged down by where you came from? How you were raised? Are you distracted by today's tendencies towards tribalism? Do you despair in terms of not belonging Or maybe you define yourself in terms of this people or that people rather than God's people, His people. Christian, be encouraged or be corrected. Both come from love from God this morning. Be encouraged or be corrected You belong not only to Christ, but you also belong to His people. His people are your people. Do you live that way? Do you believe that? His people are your people. People of Jesus are my people. People of Jesus are my people. Can you imagine the Gentiles who heard these words from Paul? They must have been so overwhelmed by the fullness of what God had done and was doing, making them His people, making bringing them all together as His people in one new man. His people are your people. That's a spiritual fact. That's not a lifestyle choice. His people are your people. But that reality, that fact begs this question, are you living in light of the truth? Are you living in light of the truth? Or are the people of God an extracurricular activity in your life? Is church Sunday only? And then I'm all about my people out there. People I hang out with at the bar. People I bowl with. Right? My family. My this. My that. My whatever. That's not in line with the truth. That doesn't match up with what God's word says. His people are your people. You belong to them. You're part of this new family. And it's the only family, the only family that will last forever. Oh, no, 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 Pastor. You don't know. You don't know about how strong my family is. You don't know about the connections in my family. You don't know how I'm going to go and we're going to have our own house in heaven, right? Because my family is going to have a big family reunion up there. And we're going to do this and this. I hate to break it to you. That's simply not true. It's not true. I'm not saying that your family members will not be in the presence of God. I can't say that. I don't know that. But what I'm telling you is this. When you stand before the throne of God, all of those old categories and labels will simply fade away. They will fade away. Will we know them? Of course we'll know them, but they won't matter. 
What will matter is that we are worshipers and servants of the true God through one Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. That we stand worshiping by his grace. Amen. That we are that family that will is united not by physical blood, but by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, forever and ever with one father. Seated firmly on his throne, receiving worship, glorified forever and ever and ever. Oh, don't you want to give yourself to that family now? That forever family. Jesus Christ shed his blood first to reconcile us to God. Hallelujah. Amen. But as we've heard this morning, his shed blood also reconciled us to one another. It reconciles us to one another for a new way to be human. That's the purpose. What an amazing heritage we have through Christ. What an amazing hope we have through Christ. Why don't we give thanks? Why don't we pray? Let's talk to God about this and ask him to help us walk in this truth. Would you pray with me?